0: The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champchurch.com. Well, I want to get into the Word here this morning. We're in a series here, so I want to jump right in, and I want to get into the Word here. Now, when you're in a series, one of the problems is you want to re-preach everything from like, well, when we started, we talked about this, and then last week we talked about this. And then you run out of time, and and it just makes things into a mess. But we're talking about knowing God's direction in your life, just having an idea of what God's direction is in your life. I mean, the Scripture gives us counsel and direction, and God is speaking to us and leading us. He's, He's directing us and guiding us according to His promise. But there's all kinds of direction and guidance being offered out there. And one of the, the challenges we have as believers is identifying what direction and what leading is God and what direction and what leading is something else, whether it's something in the world or whether it's our own uh, ambitions or, or, or things that need to be surrendered. And what we've come to is a passage of Scripture that, that sets itself up as a, a, a bit of a, a thermometer, so to speak. When we're having direction and guidance, it's a, it's a measuring device that we can use to find out if this is God that's directing us and leading us. So before we get into the Word, I want to give you a few things that we're going to find today. As we get into the Scripture together, we're going to find these things. If you're taking notes, it might be worth jotting them down to look forward to. Uh, One, why we should learn from Jesus. Not what we should learn, but why. Why we should learn from Jesus. Why we should learn from Jesus. The second thing that we're going to find, is how to know if you're wise. The wisdom test, how to know if you're wise. There's a lot of us in this room that are smart, there's no doubt about that, you're some of the smartest people I've ever seen, you know, we're going to find out if we're wise, we got to pass this test to see if we're wise, and I want to get to that in the word as we move through the message. And then a third thing we're going to find is what we need to be looking for. When we're looking for God's direction in our life, what we need to be looking for. And we're going to have to cover a lot of ground really fast. I mean, before the service, I was speaking with the worship team back there, and I just took a look at these notes and thought, oh, my goodness, this is a lot of material. So I want to move fast, and we may jump around just a bit, but I trust that God's going to lead us and guide us. And, of course, that's what we're learning how to pursue is God's leading and guiding. Now, we came to the point in where we were asking ourselves the question, is it God? Is it God? Now we have this passage of scripture that we're standing upon. It's kind of the foundational verse in the series here. We can take it down in your notes again if you like because really and truly we need to have this be what kicks off every message in this series. It comes from the book of James, James chapter 3, verse 17. James chapter 3, verse 17. It talks about God's wisdom. It identifies God's wisdom. In fact, the first words in the verse, James chapter 3, verse 17, read like this. Wisdom from above, or heavenly wisdom, is. And then you have a list of things that describe heavenly wisdom, or what God's wisdom uh, is in our lives. Wisdom from above is. First, pure. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that God's wisdom is always going to be holy. He's never leading us to do anything impure or immoral or corrupt. When we find ourselves being led to do impure, immoral, or corrupt things, you can be guaranteed you're not being led by God. You're being led by something else. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Now, last week we talked about that, that it doesn't say peaceful, but peaceable, meaning that it makes peace possible. I mean, God may give us direction and counsel that's terrifying to us, but we know in the end he has our best interest in mind, and so we pursue what he leads us and guides us to do knowing that it will make peace possible. So wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Today we're going to talk about gentle. Now when you look at these things, what we need to understand is that it's not that God's wisdom or direction is going to be one of these things. It's going to be all of these things. If we're searching and looking for God's direction and counsel in our lives, and we feel that we have direction and we feel that we have counsel, we need to be able to check off every one of these boxes to determine if it's God. If what you're hearing and what you're feeling and the direction that you you believe God is leading you in can be uh, identified as pure and peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy, then you're hearing God. You're receiving His direction. But at any point, if there's one of those boxes that can't be checked off, we ought to pause. We ought to get confirmation. We ought to get into the Word and pursue God. So today we're going to talk about gentle. I I want to tell you something just immediately here as we get started. This is a message that I'm going to deliver with tremendous conviction because it's been very few times in my life that I've ever been described as gentle. No, I'm serious. I mean, even when I was a kid, it's like a wrecking ball, you know. But gentleness is an important thing for us to pursue. It's so necessary that God has sent the Holy Spirit to bring gentleness into our lives. That ought to tell us something. It ought to tell us a couple of things, actually. One, that it's important that God's sending gentleness into our life. And two, that we don't have it without Him. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to have gentleness exist in our lives. So I want to find out what gentleness is so that it's not foreign to us. And if we would just look up the word gentle in the dictionary... We can find a, a pretty solid definition. Gentle by definition, not severe, rough, harsh, or violent. Man, I have been described as all of those things in my life severe, rough, harsh, and violent. That tells me that I need gentleness. If gentleness is not those things, then I need to see to it that those things don't describe my words, my actions, my thoughts. By definition, gentleness is not severe, not rough, not harsh, not violent. It means to calm or to soothe, to dignify or to make noble or honorable. To dignify or to make noble or honorable. That might sound a little bit strange to us, but there's a reason why uh, a certain behavior would be described as the behavior of a gentleman, so to speak. It's how we ought to behave with dignity, nobility, and honor. Now, here's something that's important for us. We need to come to this awareness that Jesus is gentle. I mean, Jesus is gentle. I want to ask you, and I mean, it's not just to, to, you know, fill a a void in the room of silence, but I want you to say, "Jesus Jesus is gentle. I mean, it's a wonderful confession to make, to get in our head something that is absolutely true so that as we get into the scripture, we'll know who Jesus is and why it's so important for us To be gentle in our lives. Jesus is gentle. You can take this down for your notes. Isaiah 42 verse 3. It's describing Jesus in a wonderful poetic piece of prophecy. And in this description of Jesus in Isaiah 42 verse 3. Jesus is described as one who would would not break a bruised reed. It reads like this. A bruised reed he shall not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring justice. It tells me something about Jesus, my King, your King, our Messiah. It tells you something about our Redeemer and our Deliverer. That when He finds us in the most wretched of situations or cases, He's never going to just say they're too far gone, just go ahead and write them off. But yet he has the compassion and the care and the gentleness to come into our tender, hurt, wounded situation and bring about justice. The justice that we celebrate in his death and resurrection by his blood. I told you before we're going to find out why we should learn from Jesus. Not necessarily what, as I said before, but why. Why we should learn from Jesus. I'd like for you to write this verse down for your notes. You can write down Matthew chapter 11. And I want to look at verses 29 and 30. Why we should learn from Jesus. Now we've had a lot of teachers in our lives. You've gone to school and you've had teachers. Some of them you you really got along with and enjoyed. Some of them maybe not so much. You've had parents and grandparents. You've had lots of teachers in your life. There's a reason why we should learn from Jesus. Jesus is an excellent teacher and we should learn from him. And you'll see that here in Matthew chapter 11. You'll see why that is. Jesus is speaking and he's speaking to me and you and he says this. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Did you hear that? And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And there you'll find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's a lot in that passage that we could stop and talk about, and we should. In fact, we could spend all of our time just simply breaking down that verse But I want to move forward. I do want to take the time to break it down slightly. Jesus is saying something here when he's saying, learn from me, for I am gentle. Now, when we read through that, if we read through it too quickly, we can miss out on some of the English, some of the the language that makes this a really powerful statement. I want you to consider the word for and what it means. Learn from me, for I am gentle. I mean, we don't really use that word a whole lot, though it exists in our language. I mean, I don't go to my wife and say, honey, would you please prepare me a sandwich for I am hungry. I mean, she might say, you know, step back for I have a frying pan. You know, I mean, you got to, you just don't talk like that. It sounds a little stiff, right? But the word for and the word because are interchangeable. They're interchangeable. The word for and the word because, I could say, man, I'd I'd really like a sandwich because I'm hungry, you know. So when we read that, I think it helps us to change that word because Jesus is saying, hey, learn from me because I'm gentle. what What he's revealing here is there's a lot of things that we could learn from, but they're not gentle. They're not gentle. There's a lot of ways you can learn, but those are the hard ways, You can go and you can learn something over there, but it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be gentle. In fact, you just trust me, it's better off that you learn from me because I'm gentle. And then he goes on to talk about what gentle means. I mean, you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have had teachers in my life that did not bring rest into my soul, which is the realm of your mind, you know, where your, your conscience is and your, your intelligence and your emotions, your soul. I've had teachers in my life that didn't bring rest. They brought stress to my soul. But Jesus is telling us that he teaches, that he leads, that he guides in such a godly way by the Spirit of God, he's leading us and guiding us in such a way that the result isn't stress in our soul, but rest. That doesn't mean that the situation or the circumstances won't be stressful, it means as we walk through that stressful situation, we can be at peace in our mind, learning from Jesus. Now, we mentioned this before, but I want to give you the scripture out of Galatians, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It identifies the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Gentleness is listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and we made a note earlier that tells us something. One, that God made a way for gentleness to come into our life. When we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand that Jesus went to the cross, that he took the beating and he took the nails and that he yielded his life and that God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his right hand, all so that the Holy Spirit could be poured out and we could have gentleness. All of that work is done so that those fruits can exist in and through my life and your life. All of those other things are a means to an end. The cross and the empty tomb and all of those things are a means to an end. The end is the presence of the Holy Spirit in me and in you producing those fruits. It should tell us this is really important. Gentleness is never accidental. Never accidental. I want to give you a passage of scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 11. It reads like this. Flee from these things. You'd have to go to verse 10 to find out these things. Flee from these things, man of God. And then it says what to pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. When I take from that passage of Scripture that gentleness is something that I need and something that I must pursue, I come into an understanding that gentleness is never just going to happen by accident. I mean, when you pursue something, you are following it, you are chasing it, you are looking for it. On a recent family vacation, my my family went on a, a, a treasure hunt. Hidden treasure in the Rocky Mountains. Solve the clues and find the gold. We had a really great time looking for it. But it meant pursuing. It meant making intentional choices and decisions to go to a certain place to look for a certain thing. I mean, everything on that trip was centered around trying to find something that wasn't right in front of us. It meant changing our location. It meant altering our schedule. For us to have gentleness in our lives, we're not going to simply say, Father, make me a gentleman, and all of the sudden, oh. But it's going to mean changing my habits and changing my mentality. I mean, let me give you a little clue. Somebody asked me earlier this morning, hey, are you still off caffeine? And, you know, it's kind of become a joke. You know, I, I kicked caffeine. The reason why was because it made me unbearable. I was drinking pot after pot of coffee, and, you know, you, you, you know somebody asks you something like, what? And you're jittery, and you're, you're, you're pounding, your heart's pounding, you don't got time for anybody, and, blah, 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 and it's just a mess. So I was intentional. If I'm going to pursue gentleness, you know, it might be good to not drug myself with, with you know, 120 ounces of coffee every morning and then go be a jerk to everybody. I mean, that's a goofy example, but it just is going to happen because we're intentional. We choose to be gentle. And I told you before we're going to find out how to know if you're wise, okay? Now, you don't have to throw your hands up because I don't want anyone to be embarrassed, but how many of you in here believe that you are are wise, that you have maybe the gift of wisdom, you know? I mean, when you talk to believers about gifts and, and things in their lives or, you know, wisdom in the scripture is listed as a spirit, a spirit of wisdom. You don't really meet people and they're like, well, I was born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit and, you know, uh, was a part of this uh, group over here and we saw these wonderful things, but, you know, I'm really just kind of a fool, you know. People really don't say that. They, you know, wisdom is something that we all see in our lives because we definitely want it there. That here's a test that we can apply to find out if it really is there. And I failed this test A lot. I want you to take down this passage of scripture for you know it's James chapter 3 verse 13 the wisdom test. Now again there's no doubt you're smart. We've got IQs in the room that are that are just phenomenal, off the charts. It's not a question of your intelligence. Are you smart? It's a question of what we do with that. Are we wise? James chapter 3 verse 13. It opens up with this question, who among you is wise and understanding? You know, don't you know when James asked that question, hands just flew up, like, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me, ooh, ooh, ooh. Who among you is wise and understanding? And then he says this, let him show it. Let him show it by his good behavior and deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Don't let him talk about it. Don't let him brag about it. Don't let him just think it's there. But let it be on display. Let it be confirmed. Let it be proven by his gentleness. The gentleness in his behavior. Gentle does not mean weak. Gentleness does not mean weakness. I mean... Really, true strength is not displayed by violent rage, but in patient restraint. Gentleness is not weakness at all. I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture out of the psalm. Psalm 27, verse 14. You know, wait for the Lord. That's restraint. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. In Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who hope or all of you who wait on the Lord. Show that restraint. It's not a sign of weakness to be gentle and not just simply fly into a rage. Gentleness doesn't mean weakness. I want to give you a a passage of Scripture, kind of a scene here. I think it's important for us to catch this. It's really powerful and it's incredibly severe. It's out of the book of Matthew. You'll see it in the Gospel gospel of Matthew. Excuse me. In chapter 26, I mean, we're going to pull from... Verses like maybe 51 through 54 where you'll find it. But you're going to see Jesus making a, a comment, a statement. And you have to understand that Jesus is, is aware of the, the violence that he, he will endure. He's aware of, of the crucifixion that's that's on the way. He's aware of all of these things. And he makes a statement. And this statement should communicate to us that that when Jesus is seized, when he's arrested, when he's bound and when he's beaten and when he's mocked and when he's crucified, this isn't because he's weak. He makes this statement, and, he, and it's one that we ought to, to take a look at, maybe do a little bit of math. He says, I can. Will you just say, I can? I can, right? I mean, that's, that's just, those are the words of my house. I mean, I remember when we were raising up our children are still young, but when they were really young, you know I can't was just something that we strive to overcome. I can. And Jesus makes this statement, "I can, I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. Well, a a legion, by these accounts, is about 6,000. So if you have 12 legions, you're going to have 72,000. I could appeal to my father, the moment they try to hold me down, and the moment they raise that hammer to drive that spike in, I could appeal to my father to send 72,000 angels, and he'd do it at once. It's not weak. In fact, if we know the, the, the power of the angels... We would really know that it's not weak. I mean, I want you to take this down for your notes. It's a, it's, a, it's a passage out of the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. You'll have to read the whole chapter there to kind of get a feel for what's going on. But verse 35 contains the, the facts and the history that are going to make the point here about Jesus being able to call and receive 72,000 angels to go to war on his behalf at a moment's notice. In 2 Kings there in chapter 19, you see one angel. Did you hear that? One. Not 72,000, but one. One angel in one night moved against the enemies of God's people and killed 185,000 men. One angel in one night ended the lives of 185,000 men. And here's Jesus saying, listen, guys, don't think I'm weak. Don't think that they're coming and they're winning. Don't think that when they kick in the door. Don't think that when they come and seize me. Don't think that when they come and bind my hands. Don't think that when they hit me with rods and sticks and fists. Don't think that when they spit on me. Don't think that when they drive the nails into my hands and raise me up on that cross. Don't think for a second that it's because of weakness. Because I could call to God. And at a moment. In a moment's notice, he would send 72,000 angels. He says, more than. These guys would have known the history of their people. They would have known one angel took out 185,000 of their enemies in one night. Do the math on that. 185,000 times 72,000. Any mathematicians in the room? what do you got? 13,320,000,000. How many people are on the earth today? 6, 7 billion, something like that? It's not weakness. It's gentleness, that he would restrain himself, knowing that That every time he felt the pain of their blows, every time he felt the pain of those nails, every time he gasped for a breath, he could end it like that. But he restrained himself. That's gentleness. It's gentle for me to know that in a moment I could crush that argument or I could get my way, but I'll restrain myself. That's gentleness. And gentleness does something wonderful. I want you to take down this passage of Scripture from the Psalms. Psalm 18, I want to look, I mean, you, you'll find it in verses 34 through 35, you know. But I, I, I want to, uh, to see a passage of Scripture specifically at the end, the ending words here. In, in this passage of the Psalms, you'll see it opens up with this, this powerful term. He, being God, He trains my hands for battle, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze, And he's given me a shield, a salvation. His hand upholds me. And his gentleness makes me great. It means God has equipped us as his his people to be extremely powerful. And it's not that power that makes us great, it's the way we use that power. To take all of that power, to take all of that authority, to take all of that training, to take all of that and not push our own agenda, not execute our own vengeance, not preserve ourselves, but to walk in gentleness. And it's that that makes us great. And there's not one single man, woman, or child in this room that doesn't long for the greatness that God's called us to in our lives. And it starts with gentleness. Now, there's benefits to to gentleness in our lives, and I want to move through these quickly. We need to pursue gentleness so that we can have success in these areas. I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture. Now, you could make entire messages on these Scriptures that I'm about to give you, but I'd rather not do that this morning for time's sake. But for a healthy marriage, gentleness is necessary. You see it in the Scripture. It's absolutely necessary. I mean, you don't have to put hands up. Please don't put hands up, right? But this one's going out to to the ladies, the wives. I mean, has your husband ever failed to keep the word of God? Has he ever done something that you know is outside of Scripture? Maybe in his actions, maybe in his words or behaviors of some kind. I mean, I have a feeling that if we were putting hands up, every married woman in this place would have their hand up. But the scripture talks about how to minister to that, how to minister to that situation within marriage, how the wife can minister to that. I mean, here's how it starts. If you want to write it down for your notes there, we're looking in 1 Peter chapter 3. And looking in the first four verses there. But you see this instruction. It's instructing the the wife in how to behave in a situation where even the husband is disobedient to the word. And by the time you get down to verse 4, you see this as the instruction. It's something that exists in the hidden person of the heart. It's described as an imperishable quality. It's identified as a gentle spirit. And the word promises that that's precious in the sight of the Lord. Now when you consider gentleness like we just did, where Jesus being nailed to that cross at any second could have said enough is enough, this is over now. When we see gentleness like that, we can understand this passage of Scripture. I know my husband's being a dirtbag. The Scripture says right there he shouldn't behave like that and he does it every day. I'm going to rip him. I'm going to ride him. I'm going to, to push and just go and go and go and I'm going to call all these people. I'm going to post. I'm gonna, you know That's not gentleness. That's taking things into your own hands. It's rooted in a vindictiveness, but yet God's call to function and operate in gentleness to take all that you could do and restrain it and allow God to move on your behalf. That's the key to success. And then you have the same thing for men in marriage. From the same chapter of 1 Peter 3, just a few verses down, you'll find it near verse 7. This verse actually came up yesterday at the men's group, and it was a wonderful uh, part of our conversation. And I mean, here's how this starts. It says, husbands in the same way. So it's not saying wives do this and husbands do this thing that's different. It's saying do the same thing. And it talks about living with your wife in an understanding way or a gentle way. And it's so important for us to function and behave like this that according to the scripture, when we fail to do so, it's a hindrance to our prayers. Meaning it's priority one. So we've got to have gentleness in order to have health within marriage. Now, we've got to have gentleness to have peace in our lives. This is another thing. If you're taking notes there, you can write it that gentleness is important in, in marriage and in covenant fellowship. Gentleness is necessary for peace. I'll give you a passage of scripture here for your notes out of the Proverbs. Proverbs 15 verse 1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When people come at you with anger, when they come at you with rage, when they come at you with accusation, when their words or their actions are hurting and they're wounding, when they're disappointing, when those things are coming your way, you have the power to disarm all of the rage, all of the anger, all of the wrath with gentleness. A gentle word turns away wrath. You know what that tells me? That tells me something. A gentle word turns away wrath. When I read that, it speaks to me that gentleness is stronger than rage. How could gentleness turn away wrath if it's less powerful? I mean, I've stood in the ocean and let the waves crash over me and watched for the big ones and and when they get so big, they push me over and I fall in the water and I think, well, I couldn't stand against that one. It was more powerful than I was. But gentleness will turn away wrath. It's a promise in the scripture that that speaks volumes that it's always more powerful to be gentle than enraged. We need gentleness in order to have forgiveness. That's a third thing. A benefit of gentleness in our lives. Colossians chapter 3. I want to look at verses 12 and 13. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. It reads like this. Those who've been chosen of God, the holy and beloved, that's me and you, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you also, you should forgive. Well, I can tell you pastorally when we're functioning and dealing with ministry, especially in deliverance, in areas where people have issues and challenges in their life that they have trouble and difficulty getting past, most of the time it's a forgiveness issue. And you can see here a list of necessary ingredients in order for forgiveness to exist. That list was compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If we lose one of those ingredients, if we lose gentleness, then we're going to come up short in what we're trying to create, and that creation is forgiveness. If you were in the kitchen and you were baking and you had all but one ingredient and you decided, you know, we'll just kind of go without it, it ain't going to taste right. I've done that. I've substituted garlic salt for salt once. It doesn't work. Just because it says salt doesn't mean it's going to work. Restoration. I mean, forgiveness and restoration aren't the same thing. I mean, somebody can hurt you and wound you, and you, ah, oh, forgive them. But it's never, ever going to be like it was before. That's a problem. I mean, what if God did that with us? What if God just said, man, you did that again? Listen, okay, I'm going to forgive you, but let me tell you something. This changes things. I forgive, but I ain't going to forget We say stuff like that, right? We put it in our movies. It's the catchphrase, gunpoint. You know, I mean, it's just we we dramatize it, and it's absolutely evil. We've got to have gentleness in our lives to see restoration. Restoration goes beyond forgiveness. The forgiveness is present to make way for the restoration so that things can be as they should be. Reconciliation, that's the ministry that we carry. Restoration, I'll give you a passage of Scripture here. And by the way, when we put this to practice, we, we absolutely liberate ourselves from temptation. It's a promise attached to the scripture. Galatians chapter six verse one. If anyone, did you catch anyone there? Yeah, I mean anyone. Believer, unbeliever, friend, enemy, doesn't matter. Anyone. Anyone who's caught in trespass. Trespass meaning sin whether it's known or unknown, whether it's rebellious or whether it was unintentional, anyone caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. First looking at yourself, so that, will you say so that? Because this is important. If we do it this way, this will be the result. So that you yourself will not be tempted too so that you yourself won't fall into temptation. Now, if we don't have gentleness in our lives, how are we ever going to restore people and how are we ever going to be able to examine ourselves and avoid temptation ourselves? If you take gentleness out of that, we're doomed to know no restoration and to suffer temptation. Gentleness is the key to restoration being a part of the church and how we function, that we don't just forgive, but we restore and that we also safeguard ourselves from temptation. It's going to require gentleness. Another benefit of gentleness would be salvation or new birth. 2 Timothy, I want to read verses 25. Excuse me, 2 uh, uh, Timothy, I have it copied down here wrong. It's in 2 Timothy. Just read 2 Timothy, you'll find it. With gentleness, correct those who are in sin so that God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of his truth, that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And I really wished I had the right address down there for that verse. It's a powerful verse. Gentleness is the key to evangelism, to, to people receiving the gospel. With gentleness, correct those who are in sin so that. Without gentleness, there's no so that. Without gentleness, there's just correction. And I think the church is filled with correction. But we need correction with gentleness. So that we can enter into situations where people are being rebellious, where people are being sinful, and we can be effective. And for us to be effective, it's going to require gentleness. Gentleness is necessary for us to walk in our inheritance. I'll give you a passage of Scripture here out of the Beatitudes. That would be in the book of Matthew. Blessed are the gentle. For they shall inherit the earth. We've got to have gentleness in our lives. And when we don't value gentleness, when we don't pursue gentleness, when we don't seek gentleness, it's easy for us to miss God, to miss His direction, to miss His counsel. It's easy for us to miss what He's doing. I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture. One is out of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. You'll see the point in verse 55. But Jesus is walking with a couple of His disciples. I mean, it could be you. It could be me. It could have been any one of us in the room here. You're a disciple. You were just born a little late to be walking with Him in this instance. But this could have easily been me. Jesus is walking with them and and somebody hurts their feelings. There's a rejection that's taken place. And the disciples Just get really frustrated and really angry and say, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy those jerks over there that didn't invite you in? And man, they said that with a smile on their face. First of all, they were built up in their faith. They believed they could call down fire from heaven and it would come and happen. That's pretty faith-filled walking, isn't it? I mean, these guys aren't spiritual midgets. They're they're thinking, hey, listen, we're empowered to do great things for your kingdom. So how about those guys that didn't invite you in, let's call down fire from heaven, roast them real good. Here's Jesus' response to that. He just said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Now, we could stand to hear that ourselves when people offend us and we're thinking, yeah. We could stand to hear that. You don't know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy, but to save. Most of the time, when I'm offended, my response is to destroy. You push me, I'm gonna push you back. You're not gonna like it. But the call of God upon our lives is to display a strength through the restraint of gentleness, to be powerful. And to release that power in an effective way. That it doesn't bring about destruction, but it brings about restoration and reconciliation. That it leads people to repentance. I mentioned before that we're going to find out what we need to be looking for as we're looking for God. As we're looking for His presence. As we're looking for His counsel. As we're looking for His will in our lives. I want to give you this passage of scripture as we close here. And it's out of 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, the specific verses that we'll look at are just verses 11 through 13. But if you read these chapters here, it's a wonderful narrative of history. It's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. This actually happened. The characters, the people that are are in this are people who are really historically recorded and documented individuals. The activities that took place here really took place. You'll see the prophet of God. And he's in a situation where he's needing to hear God. He's needing direction. He's needing counsel. He's been offended. He's been frustrated. He's hurt and he's wounded. He's disappointed. He's needing wisdom from heaven. He needs direction. He needs to know where to go and what to do. And there's all kinds of voices telling him where to go and what to do. But he knows he needs to hear one voice, and that's the voice of God. And as he's pursuing the voice of God, he comes to a place where God is speaking to him. And the Bible says that these magnificent displays take place. Up on a mountaintop where God is speaking to the prophet, there's this horrendous and terrible wind. Many people interpret it like a typhoon or tornado. The wind is recorded as being so powerful it's shearing the rocks off the side of the mountain. This powerful wind. This powerful wind is taking a place and having its way on the mountain, eroding the side of the mountain in an instant, but the scripture says that God was not in the wind. And the prophet stood and he waited. And then it said there was a terrible earthquake. The ground shook. and I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I have. It's the most helpless feeling I've ever had in my life. I mean, you can get in your car and drive away from a tornado, but where are you going to go when the ground is shaking underneath you? The ground began to shake. The rocks are cracking and splitting in two. This magnificent display of power. But the scripture is very clear that God wasn't in the earthquake. And then it says there was a terrible fire. This this inferno, this flame, the heat. it, It was destructive. It was scorching the very rock itself. This massive display of power was taking place. And the word says that God wasn't in the fire. And following that wind that was breaking the rocks, following the the earthquake that was shaking the ground, and following the fire that was scorching the stone, came this gentle breeze. When the prophet heard that gentle breeze, the word said he covered his face because he knew that God was speaking to him. And God began to speak to him. Now, it's a wonderful uh, uh, piece of history to read, and it's, it, it, it's, it's an incredible uh, uh, thing to imagine and visualize, but there's something there that I want us to take because I think as believers, especially in certain circles of church, charismatic churches and spirit-filled churches, we, we are almost instructed and taught to seek power, look for power, but God throughout his word is showing us to look for the person, not the power. If you were looking for power, you would have missed Jesus. He could have called 72,000 angels, but he didn't. If the prophet were looking for power, he would have missed God because he would have chased the wind, he would have chased the earthquake, he would have chased the fire, and he would have missed the breeze. We have a call upon our lives to function and operate in gentleness. And as we pursue gentleness, we need to know what to pursue. Our God is gentle, though at a word he could shake the earth, at a word fire could consume, at a word the wind could blow us all off the face of this planet. But yet his gentleness, in his gentleness, he cares for us, he leads us, he guides us, he restores us, and we're called to do the same. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. As you gather up your items there and stand. I want to say that this personally is very unnatural. As a young man being raised up. The world would instruct that if you want respect. Or if you want to accomplish something. That power is revealed in force. It manifests in aggression. But the scripture would tell us something completely different. That power would be manifest in restraint. To know that the very spirit of God abides and resides in you. The same power that sheared the side of that mountain. The same power that shook the foundations of that mountain. The same power that scorched the stones on that mountain. Resides inside of you. It's an amazing thing to consider. And that the release of that power is not in a carnal release, in rage and in anger and in fits, loss and lack of self-control. But the release of that power is in gentleness, the restraint that God would call us to, to see greatness released in the earth that would bring about repentance and restoration. I want to be a people who know the fullness of that reconciliation that restoration our words and our actions and our lives making a way for restoration to exist in the church that this would be a place where in the midst of our our errors and our failures we wouldn't simply know forgiveness but that we would know forgiveness and restoration that we could be a people who don't suffer temptation because of the gentleness manifest in our lives As the Bible would describe us, a spiritual people, not a carnal people, not a worldly people, but a people of the kingdom of God. I want to ask God for gentleness this morning. There where you stand, I want to trust and believe God to do a great work in us, a work that would remove vindictiveness, anger, rage, and wrath. And a work that would impart into us gentleness. That would produce restoration and reconciliation. So there where you stand, you're welcome to be in agreement. You're welcome to simply receive as a pray. You're welcome to lift your hands to heaven. You're welcome to posture yourself however you see fit. But I want to ask God to do this work in us this morning. Father, we bless your name and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you provide heavenly wisdom. And we thank you that it will always lead us into gentleness. As we find ourselves led into anything outside of what is gentle, let us pause and stop. Let us lay down that direction and take up the direction you would call us to. The direction of gentleness that would lead to restoration and healing. That would lead to productivity and growth. And not death and destruction, not separation, but unity. We give you thanks for gentleness. And we ask that gentleness by your spirit would prevail in our hearts and our minds, that it would be released through our words and our actions, that we would be a spiritual people who would bring restoration where it's in need, who would turn away wrath with gentle words and actions, that we would be a people who would function and operate as you would call us to, just like Jesus. And let there be a a redeeming work in our minds that gentleness would not be seen as weakness, but let it be interpreted, received, and embraced as the full measure of your strength. Make us to be a strong people by the work of your spirit. Let old ways be cast down and let new ways be taken up for your namesake and your glory. We thank you and rejoice in you in the mighty name of Jesus and all the saints declare amen.